Uh, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you very much, Professor Findlay, and thank you to the Mershon Center, and thank you all um, for, for coming here today. I, I want to speak, or I was asked to speak, actually I volunteered to speak uh, on a topic, um, on the topic of, of anti-Americanism in the Arab world. Um, it's, a, it's a topic about which I sort of um, came to accidentally, like many of us in this room, uh, in the last seven or eight years. It's a topic which um, is not, as Professor Findlay just said, is, is, is not the primary, or has not been, I should say, the primary aspect of my, my historical research, which is focused very much on the 19th century. But it is a topic that I believe very firmly and strongly uh, that a 19th century understanding, or an understanding of the United States or American-Arab relations in the 19th century can very much help us understand the context, the meaning, the significance of events that are occurring today. And my thesis, in fact, is very simple. What we call anti-Americanism, for there is no such term in Arabic, what we call anti-Americanism in the Arab world is tied specifically to American policies in the Middle East. Anti-Americanism, however, has to be understood in the context of a much wider Middle Eastern history that takes us back, as I said, to the 19th century, that deals with the defeat of the Ottoman Empire and the colonial partition of the Middle East in the aftermath of the, partition of the, uh, of the defeat of the Ottoman Empire. Anti-Americanism, I want to make clear at the very outset, is not, is not a concrete ideology. There is no single party, no organization, no sect, no cultural grouping, let alone religion among Arabs, that makes it its object to hate America simply because America is America or because it is, quote, free. There is still less, I believe, a clash of civilizations. Despite the fervent desire of people both here in Europe and in the Middle East who do believe in such a clash and who are deeply invested in such a notion, what does exist, however, in my view, incontrovertibly, if we follow the historical record, is an enormous anger and disappointment with the United States in the Arab world, which is itself a reflection of the enormous gap in Arab eyes between American professions of democracy and freedom and American policies in the region, which have consistently supported the opposite. Anti-Americanism, in short, is not the emanation of blind hatred, but of historic disillusionment. And I want to emphasize that point. To appreciate how recent anti-Americanism really is, and how utterly tied it is to politics rather than to religion or culture, I will quickly review what I consider to be the important but neglected history of the 19th century, and specifically of American missionary work in the 19th century. Because my, the, the basic sort of argument is that up until the mid-20th century, if anything, there was a respect for the United States. I, I would even call it a pro-Americanism, but that's, I think, an exaggeration. It's, it's, too, it's too strong a term. There was a respect, a grudging respect for the United States, and there was a very powerful sense in the Arab world, as well as in the Ottoman Empire as a whole, that the United States was a great power, a Western power, but not a colonial power as far as the Middle East uh, was concerned. And that was significant, because the other great powers, the British, the French, and the Russians, were seen as, of course, colonial powers when it came to the Middle East. It is very much the mid-20th century that changes this and that leads eventually to what we today call anti-Americanism. 
And I want to conclude my paper today by reflecting with you why it is that in the West and in America, this basic and, in my view, quite obvious historical relationship between American policy and anti-American sentiment in the Arab world has been so difficult to articulate. Why is it that at a time when so many people in the United States and in Europe have been obsessed with why Arabs and Muslims supposedly hate America, why is it that they refuse, people here refuse so consistently to listen and comprehend to the most simple and least convoluted of explanations? So, to the history. The most basic glance, passing glance at the historical record reveals that to the extent that any Arabs knew about America before the 20th century, they had a largely respectful or positive image of it. 19th century newspapers, Arabic newspapers, novels, poems, Arab immigrants, letters back home, all indicated a general belief that the United States was a land of opportunity. Americans perhaps were seen as overly materialistic, um, but nevertheless, the United States was seen as a land of profound uh, opportunity for Arabs. American Protestant missionaries in the Middle East, who had been sent out in 1819, who went out in 1819 and arrived in the Arab world or in the Ottoman Empire in 1820, represented for most people who had any idea about what the United States was in the 19th century, represented America to most Arabs. And what, what sort of cemented this sense that American missionaries represented America what were the institutions of higher education that missionaries set up, schools first and then eventually colleges throughout the Ottoman Empire, the most famous of which is the Syrian Protestant College, which we today call the American University of Beirut, which was founded in 1866. Robert College was founded in 1863 in Istanbul. Constantinople Women's College was founded in 1873. The first girls' school in the Ottoman Empire was founded by American missionaries in 1834. There was a very clear association between Americans and uh, and education. And the, ver the very first Arabic newspapers, the development of the modern Arabic press, was in fact initiated by people who were either associated with the missionaries or actual converts themselves. Uh, there was a very strong relationship. It's true, of course, that most American missionaries initially had little understanding of Arab society, just as most Arabs had very little understanding of America itself. 1820, as I said, is when the, these Protestant American missionaries, specifically Congregationalist missionaries, first arrived in the empire. And at the outset, they were determined to convert everyone. They wanted to convert all Eastern Christians, Jews, and Muslims to what they uh, articulated or what they expressed as an intensely millennialist American form of Protestantism. These Protestants believed firmly that secular time was running its course. They believed that the second coming of Jesus Christ was imminent, but they also believed that it was their Christian duty to save as many people as possible in as many parts of the world as possible before the beginning of a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And thus they worked with Native Americans here in this country. They worked with Sandwich Islanders, i.e. people in Hawaii. They worked in India, and they also worked in the Bible lands. The first missionaries explicitly spoke about the need to spiritually conquer the Muslim Ottoman Empire, and yet they arrived, as I said, in the empire without knowing any native language. They knew virtually nothing about local society. It's also true that there was tremendous resistance to these American missionaries by Eastern Christian churches 
and later, which is also significant, by the Ottoman government itself. The missionaries, in other words, met resistance and they failed in their effort to convert people in the Middle East to Protestantism. That's why today there's a very small Protestant community in the Arab, in the Arab world. There's a larger Armenian Protestant community, but Armenians, of course, are not Arab. The, the, the important point of all this history and this background is that the missionaries, if they had persisted only in trying to convert people, the missionary sort of enterprise would have been a 19th century story and it would have ended there as a failure. What the missionaries did, however, is that they adapted. They adapted because they recognized that there was no way in simply plowing forward in opposition, in flagrant opposition to what people on the ground actually wanted. And so they began to offer what people actually wanted, which was secular, essentially a secular education, which is why they uh, ended up concentrating on institutions of higher education. One cannot underestimate the importance uh, of the, the establishment of American colleges of higher education because these things, not, these institutions were not only among the very first of their kind in the Ottoman Empire, but they also sparked an Ottoman and a Muslim uh, emulation of these colleges so that there was an educational renaissance that took place in the late Ottoman Empire. Some people respected, other people were anxious, but nevertheless there was this incredible activity in the educational realm and very much American Protestants were seen as the people who embodied education. So American evangelism was not entirely discarded. Uh, it, it persisted. Even in these institutions, there was still an evangelical emphasis, but secular education, medicine in particular, became uh, a, a very much uh, identified with, with these American missionaries. The Americans, in other words, the missionaries began to adapt themselves to a multi-religious land a multi-religious world, rather than trying to convert everyone, they learned to work with them. And this combination, this meeting point, this mutual understanding is what created the basis for uh, an Arab appreciation for America in the 19th century. Now, obviously, the story is, is far more complex. I just finished a book about this. Uh, I'm not plugging a book, but I mean, it, I, I'm acknowledging that there's, I'm leaving out a huge, a lot of information. I'm happy to elaborate about the racial aspects of American missionaries, their, their views and how those views changed on, in the course of the 19th century. But suffice it to say here that it is significant that the public and practical face of America in the Middle East was educational and philanthropic, even though in missionary letters, in their diaries, in their journals, in their sermons, in their uh, lectures back in the United States when they came back for tours, they, they had very paternalistic attitudes, even racist attitudes towards Arabs and others around the world, but as far as people in the Middle East were concerned, what they saw of America and of the American missionaries was sincere uh, uh, major efforts in education. The face, as I said, of America was educational and philanthropic. It's significant, in fact, that the most important Western figure who came to embody for Arabs in the 19th century, reformist liberal Arabs of the 19th century, Muslims and Christians, the, the most important Western figure who came to embody Western modernity or scientific modernity was an American missionary by the name of Cornelius Van Dyke. That Van Dyke had mastered Arabic, that he had gone in a sense native, so much so that Arab Christian and Muslim admirers often said about him that they could not tell that he was in fact not uh, a, a, an Arab, that Van, Dyke had that Van Dyke had translated and authored major books in science and medicine in Arabic, that he had helped finish the translation of the Bible in modern Arabic with the help of the Muslim Sheikh Yusuf Asir, that he, had that he was read, that Van Dyck was read in newspapers or through newspapers in Egypt, in Syria, and in Iraq, 
that Van Dyck consistently repudiated in his private letters, as well as public pronouncements, uh, American chauvinism in, f in favor of a more ecumenical approach to uh, what, what was the role of a missionary, made him an American of Dutch heritage who endured a, a, a very difficult childhood, uh, made him the modern exemplar of the ecumenical possibilities of a very optimistic, as far as the Arabs were concerned, 19th century age. Now, I, I don't want to imply, as I said, that there is no opposition. There was opposition. First, Eastern Christian, then uh, Muslim, uh, uh, especially a religious sheikhs who got very nervous about, about Muslim students attending American institutions, missionary institutions, and of course the Ottoman state itself. All these uh, are part of the story, but Regardless of the opposition, the opposition was always expressed as opposition to religious work, never to the United States and never to Americans as American. And that, that is a crucial, very important point to underscore. In other words, uh, American institutions, colleges were objects of emulation. They were not at all seen as things to hate at all. Unlike those in America itself in the 19th century, late 19th century, who began, uh, especially in the, in the latter half of the 19th century, to attach themselves to exotic and so-called Christian Zionist perspectives of the Holy Land, American missionaries, both as individuals and through their institutions, resigned themselves, accommodated themselves, and even thrived in a multi-religious, as I said, a multi-ethnic reality, which they knew by the end of the century they could not immediately overcome. A mutual toleration grudging at times, imperfect, uh, um, uh, hesitant, if you want, but nevertheless a mutual toleration was the basic norm between Americans and Arabs until the very end of the Ottoman Empire. This toleration was not always easy. There were all these incidents which I can talk about which, which exposed the, 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 the fragility of this toleration, even its contradictions, but it was not, and this is the important point, mutually destructive. The First World War was clearly a turning point in modern Arab history. While the American president, Woodrow Wilson, spoke of the importance of self-determination in fashioning a new world order, European powers preoccupied themselves, specifically the British and the French, with, carve, with a secret plan to partition the Ottoman Empire according to the logic of an older imperial order. The British, for example, had promised an independent Arab state in 1915 to Sharif Hussein of Mecca if he rebelled against his Ottoman Turkish masters, rulers. At the same time, however, the British were also secretly negotiating with the French and the Russians a partition of the Middle East, which eventually becomes known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, by which the French would eventually gain possession of what would become Syria and Lebanon and the British of Iraq, Jordan, and Palestine. And then in 1917, the British promised European Zionists a Jewish homeland in Palestine. This, of course, was the famous Balfour Declaration, by which Lord Balfour officially pledged that the British government would, quote, look, upon favor, look with favor excuse me, upon the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. Thus, in a nutshell, began what we would call the Arab-Israeli conflict. Arabs, it should be pointed out, were 90% of the population of Palestine at this time. Jews were less than 10%. And among the Jews who lived in Palestine, the vast majority were not Zionists. Yet at Versailles in 1919, both Arabs and Zionists presented their claims along with any number of other peoples 
to the great powers of the world. To make sense of these competing claims, the League of Nations agreed to an American proposal that was first suggested by none other than Howard Bliss, who was the president of the Syrian Protestant College, the son of the founder of the college, and a very liberal missionary in his own right, sort of like Cornelius van Dyck. Wilson agreed uh, in 1919 to create a commission to investigate the situation on the ground. The commission was headed by a philanthropist and industrialist, Charles Crane, and the Oberlin College president, Henry King. The so-called King-Crane Commission represented, I think, the high point of missionary influence on an American attitude towards the Orient. It was also a watershed. It was the first, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, first such international commission set up by an idealistic moment at the League of Nations, itself a result of Wilsonian principles, that actually asked natives how it was that they wanted to rule themselves or how it was that how it was they envisioned their own future, as opposed to, say, the Congress of Berlin in the 19th century or, of course, Sykes-Picot itself in 1916. And yet, because it recorded native aspirations that were contrary to British and French colonial visions of the Middle East, its findings were never uh, were never uh, uh, taken into account. They were suppressed. The commissioners toured Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria. And these were, it was a League of Nations commission. Technically, the British and the French were meant to be part of it, but it, w- it ended up being only an American commission. These commissioners in 1919 toured Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria and held hundreds of interviews with the local population. Like many American Protestants, the commissioners associated at the outset of their, of their tour, the Holy Land with the Jewish people. And so, by their own admission, began with a marked sympathy for the Zionist program. The Zionist program being, of course, the program to create a Jewish uh, state in, uh, in Palestine itself. They could understand why, they said, why Jews wanted a state of their own. I mean, they were completely cognizant of the history of European Um, persecution of Jews. Yet a majority of the commissioners departed the Arab provinces with radically different conclusions. Like the missionaries before them, the commissioners were not oblivious to local realities and sentiments, and they adapted their views according to them. They recommended first and foremost an independent, unified Arab state in Syria, Palestine, and Lebanon. Because, they said, the people of this region spoke the same language and shared the same culture. Commissioners wrote that if necessary, the state should be placed under American mandatory control. Because they claimed Arabs had explicitly expressed more faith in America than in any other great power because of its lack of colonial ambitions, because of its missionary presence, because of its educational efforts, because of its democracy, and because of Arab immigration to the United States. Arabs, by the end of the 19th century, there there were tens of thousands. Uh, tens of thousands or 10,000, I'm not sure, but a significant number of Arabs who actually made it over to the United States and helped create a literature of exile in the United States uh, in Arabic. This, of course, uh, you could see as all self-serving propaganda. Perhaps King and Crane were just touting their own sort of uh, uh, American sense uh, um, of themselves. It could also be seen as a study in missionary self-glorification, It could also be seen, the King Crane Commission, in other words, could be seen as an exhibit of American exceptionalism on display. But what they said next in their report, their final report, uh, was certainly none of these things. 
It was on the subject of Palestine that the King Crane commissioners were most prescient. They insisted, and this is in 1919 again, that if Wilsonian principle, if the Wilsonian principle of self-determination was to be upheld, Zionism had to be seriously modified. They pointed out the obvious. The overwhelming sentiment of the overwhelming majority of the natives was for independence and was deeply opposed to turning over their land to foreign European Jewish settlers. Because of this basic and inescapable fact, the American commissioners warned that Zionism could only be accomplished through violence. Decisions, they wrote, requiring armies to carry out are sometimes necessary, but they are surely not gratuitously to be taken in the interests of a serious injustice. For the initial claim often submitted by Zionist representatives that they have a right to Palestine based on an occupation of 2,000 years ago can hardly be seriously considered. End quote. Yet this is precisely what the British considered. They created in Palestine a mandate unlike any other mandate in the, Ottoman, in the former Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire. The British mandate was not formally committed to the natives' eventual sovereignty and improvement, as was the case, theoretically at least, with the mandates that were created in neighboring Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, or what becomes in Transjordan, and in Mesopotamia, in Iraq. Instead, the British mandate was explicitly committed to European Zionism in flat disregard of the natives' wishes. Balfour himself, the author of the Balfour Declaration, was absolutely explicit about this in a memorandum he wrote in 1919 where he said, we did not even go through the form of asking what the native aspirations actually are. He said, the four great powers are committed to Zionism. And Zionism, he said, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions and present needs and future hopes of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. End quote. Classic British uh, imperial thinking. What's truly extraordinary about this admission by Balfour is not the will to represent the Arabs in an Orientalist light, but to privilege by dint of imperial fiat, by sheer coercion, one narrative of history over another. The redemption and restoration, as it were, of the Jewish people to Palestine as a byproduct of an Anglo-French scramble for the Middle East took clear precedence for Balfour over the actual inhabitants of Palestine. The Arabs, in a word, were irrelevant to the great humanitarian as well as Christian imperial benevolence of Great Britain. The recommendations of the King Crane Commission, in other words, were utterly ignored, as were Arab nationalist aspirations. Wilson himself backed away from his principles in the Arab world, as in Korea, as in China, as in India. And in the process, he helped pull the rug from under the feet of an entire generation of liberal nationalists who believed firmly in a Wilsonian vision. On the question of Palestine, in fact, he was sympathetic to Zionism. And like most Americans of this period, he paid scant attention to the fact that Palestine was already inhabited by another people. The upshot of all this, and how it's all related to anti-Americanism, will become clear. The upshot was that the Zionist movement, at first with British imperial support, and then at the very end in 1947 and 1948 with American diplomatic support, succeeded in establishing a Jewish state in 1948, but at a huge price. It's well known, of course, in the United States and in Europe 
that Arab states were opposed to the creation of Israel in 1948. Less well known is that the Zionist forces systematically expelled the Palestinians, or the people we today call the Palestinians, during and after the war. Nearly 800,000 Palestinians were forced out of what would become the State of Israel. After the war, after the war, the State of Israel then dispossessed these refugees of their villages, their towns, their lands, their homes, and with them their artwork, their clothing, their cutlery, their books, their furniture. In short, anything Palestinians could not carry with them. The nascent Israeli state then deliberately destroyed nearly 400 Arab villages in the aftermath of the war to clear the land and the memory of any Arab presence. Ever since that time, the Israeli state has categorically refused to acknowledge, let alone compensate, the mass of Palestinian refugees, who today, of course, remain impoverished and stateless. Most in the West, it goes without saying, in the United States, regard Israel through the lens of the Holocaust and through a knowledge of the persecution of Jews at different moments in European history. This raises, of course, a profound ethical question. For many in the West were indeed at the time, in 1948, genuinely concerned about the enormous post-war crisis, about the displaced persons languishing in refugee camps in Europe, about the need to confront a terrible moment in Western history, the genocide against the Jews of Europe, Yet, at the same time, Western support for Israel has also stood on almost total ignorance, indeed an active and acute denial of the very real consequences that Zionism had for its primary victims, the Arab Christians and Muslims of Palestine. It is significant that every country in the region, in the Mediterranean, including Greece and Iran in the Middle East, were opposed to the UN partition, Resolution 181, of 29 November 1947 that sanctioned a Jewish state. It is also significant that the native Arab majority was opposed to it, for it was their land that was being given away. It is also significant that Western nations, including Australia, Belgium, the Soviet Union, Canada, France, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, Sweden, Poland, and the United States were for partition. None of these, of course, are actually neighbors or in this region. Those most immediately involved, in other words, were opposed, and those most distant from the reality and the consequences of partition were in favor. If the Palestinians are regarded in the United States or by the United States and in Europe today simply as a problem, a people without history, in the Arab world, and this is the importance of this whole history I just gave you, in the Arab world, the question of Palestine became the metaphor that most Arabs, the metaphor that most strongly evoked for Arabs a very profound and real history of European colonialism, which promised liberation and delivered the opposite. The great historian of the modern Middle East, Albert Hurani, himself testified in 1946 before the Anglo-American Commission of Inquiry in Palestine. And he told the, the, committee, uh, the, the, uh, the Commission of Inquiry that the Western support for a Zionist takeover of Palestine would radicalize the Arab world. This is in 1946. He said, if the West ignores Arab legitimate claims to Palestine, to their own land, and if Arabs are made to pay the price for Zionism, regardless of how good or just or noble Zionism is in European context, many Arabs, he said, would, quote, turn away from the West and from the world in spiritual isolation and hatred 
taking nothing from the outside world except the material means with which to combat it. End quote. This is in 1946. My point here is not simply to underscore the astonishing American and European inability to accept the equal humanity and history of Arabs, nor is my point simply to underscore Western hypocrisy that was from the outset, that has from the outset tainted their desire to make amends for the horrors of their Western European anti-Semitism. In other words, I'm not simply pointing out that the Arabs in the Arab world were made to pay the price, pay the price of European anti-Semitism. My point, rather, is to locate the rise of anti-American sentiment at precisely this juncture. It was a result, the historical product of the refusal of the West and most egregiously of the liberals in the West to listen to what was being told to them in utterly plain and simple language by a variety of Arabs. Again from this period, almost identical pleas about the basic notions of justice and equality and equity were made by Arabs of all sorts that echoed directly the language of the King Crane, King Crane Commission report. Christian Arabs such as Philip Hitti, Albert Hurani, George Antonius were all deeply steeped in and in a sense were seduced and were made by Western liberal rhetoric and Muslim Arab monarchs who had nothing to do with liberal rhetoric such as King Abdullah of Jordan and King Abdul Aziz of Saudi Arabia all appealed to the United States in very, very, very similar language and they were all dismissed or ignored. Without question then, Arab disillusionment with America began in 1947 when the United States, as I said, led the fight for the partition of Palestine as a result of which Israel came into being and as a result of which the natives of Palestine were expelled. As early as 1950, a classified American report from the Middle East indicated a new problem of what the report said was, quote, anti-Americanism. It said this new problem of anti-Americanism has emerged in the Arab world. The report noted two things about this anti-Americanism. First, that it was based on a sincere objection, this is the words of the report, to America's part in Palestine developments, end quote. And second, that it was alleg allegedly encouraged, anti-Americanism was allegedly encouraged by weak Arab governments, quote, to divert attention from their own inadequacies, end quote. So it began in 1947-48, and so anti-Americanism has remained. Far from being perceived in the Arab, from being, sorry, from being perceived in the Arab world as an anti-colonial great power, as an educational force, as an embodiment of the ideals of a scientific modernity, the United States has become ever more obviously to Arabs the principal patron of a Western colonial order in the Middle East. I want to emphasize that this sense of alienation from America did not happen overnight. Disillusionment did not become hatred. Disillusionment took a long, long time before it became uh, despair. Just as the U.S. relationship to Israel has changed enormously over the past several decades. There were moments between 1948 and 1967, and even later, when the U.S. would try to seriously address this sort of, its own sense of being an anti-colonial power, and yet its own uh, inheritance from the British of a deeply colonial map of the modern Middle East. So when Eisenhower demanded, insisted that Israel, Britain, and France immediately pull out of Egypt in 1956, he was in part, at least, trying to reconcile this U.S. dilemma. When Jimmy Carter, President Carter, unambiguously called for an immediate Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon in 1978, 
and supported the passage of Security Council Resolution 425 in that same year and UN Security Council Resolution 465 in March of 1980. He was again trying to reconcile contradictory aspects of American diplomacy in the region. As important as these, these caveats are, however, something definitely changed in the Arab world after 1948. And this, ch this change adversely affected U.S.-Arab relations. The hegemony of pro-Western liberalism in the Arab world was effectively routed by Western colonialism. The first blow was administered by Sykes-Picot and by Balfour, and the second blow by the support for the creation of a Jewish state when most of Africa and Asia at the exact same time were on the cusp of decolonization. So the entire world is going one direction, and in the Arab world you have, as far as Arabs are concerned, a flagrant colonial imposition, a settler colonial state. The collapse of liberal nationalism in the Arab world was due to many reasons, but surely one of them was the utter failure of Arab liberals to convince the West in its own language of liberalism, its own language of justice and injustice about what was being perpetrated at the heart of the Arab world. So what came after the failure of the liberals to convince the West? Secular, strident, militant, national, or military, or military national cultures such as Gamal Abdel Nasser's Egypt. What did Nasser do? He took rather than waited. He just took the Suez Canal. He nationalized the Suez Canal. Um, and, and as a result of standing up to the West militarily, or at least trying to, he gained enormous popularity in the Arab world. So if the liberals of the Arab world were ignored by the West, Nasser and his secular nationalist ilk were vilified in the West. And for all his flaws, and there were many in Gamal Abdel Nasser's regime in Egypt, undemocratic, he oversaw the introduction of a national security regime which, which tortured people, uh, persecuted opposition, censored the press. Nasser, however, for all these flaws, did embody something very important that we should pay attention to, which is to say a very deep Arab desire for true independence, for dignity, and above all, for real self-representation. He was the inevitable reaction to decades of Western colonialism. He was also secular and he was anti-communist. Nasser crushed both the Communist Party in Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood, and he did it in a very brutal fashion. The U.S., however, viewed Nasser through a Cold War prism. It identified him as radical. Quite simply, it viewed secular national regimes in the Arab world and the Middle East more, more generally, including Iran, uh, as a threat to its own hegemony in the region and its own desire and need for oil, to secure oil supplies from the region. The U.S. therefore deliberately and methodically, and this you can trace through national security, declassified National Security Council documents, supported or identified the least progressive, the most reactionary states in the region, i.e. the Saudis, as the bulwark of their Middle Eastern order. The U.S. also backed Israel, and it also deposed Mossadegh in Iran in 1953 in a CIA coup and helped restore the autocratic rule of the Shah. There was a choice, and the choice was made. It was rational, perhaps, but it had consequences. The 1967 war, and I'm, I'm going to wrap up here, finally shattered uh, what was left of secular Arab nationalism to the unconcealed delight of those who opposed Nasser. It destroyed Nasser's credibility in the Arab world. It opened the way for the rise of Islamic movements, which had always been there, but which became far bolder, more entrenched, and even more violent in the aftermath of that catastrophic war.
These Islamic movements were initially not focused on America. They were focused initially on various regimes in the Arab world and in Iran. In Iran, Khomeini, of course, succeeded. In Egypt, in Algeria, in Syria, the Islamists have not succeeded. In Lebanon and Palestine, however, the weakest Arab state and the non-state, uh, the Islamic movements, Hamas and Hezbollah, although they're very different from one another, have come to the fore. Each of these movements and context is, of course, different. Each has to be studied and examined separately. I understand this and concede this. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is just how deeply the U.S. strategic imperatives for control of oil resources, its Cold War priorities, its hostility to secular nationalism, its opposition to democratic rule from the 1950s all the way until very recently, its support for Saudi Arabia, combined with its escalating support for Israel, which continued to colonize the, the remnants of mandatory Palestine, especially in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. Uh, all these uh, made the United States, uh, um, made, the, made the, the, the American sort of Middle East or the American-dominated Middle East uh, um, seen as deeply undemocratic and deeply repressive. So the point ultimately is not that it's repression and oppression per se that, that, uh, that create anti-Americanism, it is the association of the United States with repression and oppression that leads to or that exacerbates uh, anti-American sentiment. Predictably, the invasion and current U.S. occupation of Iraq has hugely inflamed anti-American sentiments and passions in the region. As the Arab journalist Lami Khoury has recently put it, U.S. ignorance and arrogance have been augmented by ordinance. The combination of factors, ignorance, i.e. not knowing about the history and complexity of the Middle East, arrogance, i.e. not caring about not knowing, and ordinance, i.e. forcing the reality to fit the fantasy by recourse to overwhelming firepower, is fertile ground for anti-American sentiment. It is also fertile ground for failure. The vast majority of anti-American sentiment in the Arab world is simply that, till today, just sentiment. The vast majority of Arabs, and this is borne out by the most recent polls, the vast majority of Arabs still make a crucial distinction between U.S. Pol policies on the one hand and Americans as a people uh, and uh, Americans as individuals on the other. And I think that is a very important point, and it gives what little hope there is. But in the repressive status quo that is the U.S.-dominated Middle East today, there are underground Islamist movements which have a far bleaker and more violent worldview than anything that's come before. In their hands, anti-Americanism goes from sentiment to terrible and cruel action. I'm referring, of course, to men like Osama bin Laden and others who justify their atrocities by recourse to a language of a clash of civilizations that stretches back in their own minds to the Crusades and to early Islam. Such men, of course, are not the first Islamic extremists in history. Nor is their extremism itself all tied in any way to American policy. There are many reasons why this, this group of transnational jihadis have emerged with the prominence that they have. Nevertheless, zealots like bin Laden describe the United States as evil and have justified killing innocent Americans as revenge for what he consistently calls the, quote, crusader Zionist aggression against Muslims. But these fanatics like bin Laden are ultimately a tiny minority who readily exploit and easily exploit general Arab discontent with their own governments and even more exploit the one issue, Palestine, upon which there is general Arab consensus. 
the one issue in which Christian Arab and Muslim Arab, Sunni and Shi'i, Moroccan Yemeni, Egyptian Lebanese, Iraqi and Kuwaiti actually agree. Every single poll of the Arab world confirms the fact that anti-American sentiment is tied to U.S. policies. Every single poll that you can look at, including, which I'll come to now, the Pentagon's own Defense Science Board Task Force on Strategic Communication report from 2004. The report states on page 18 that, quote, U.S. policies on the Israeli-Palestinian issue and Iraq have damaged America's credibility and power to persuade, end quote. They add on page 40, quote, Muslims do not hate our freedoms, but rather they hate our policies. The overwhelming majority voice their objections to what they see as one-sided support for in favor of Israel and against Palestinian rights, and the long-standing, even increasing support for what Muslims collectively see as tyrannies, most notably Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Pakistan, and the Gulf states. Thus, when American public diplomacy talks about bringing democracy to Islamic societies, this is seen as no more than self-serving hypocrisy, end quote. This last statement by the Pentagon is, of course, simply a confirmation of the classified U.S. report from 1950 that I referred to earlier. It goes back to Palestine. And yet Palestine is the one issue here in public, uh, in, public in, in political sort of uh, debates. It's the one issue that American governments, Democrat or Republic, Republican, or presidential candidates for that matter, categorically refuse to deal with in an equitable and intelligent manner. So finally, in conclusion, the final conclusion, the question really should be is not why do Arabs hate America because they don't hate America. They're disillusioned with American policy. They hate American policy. But why is it that nobody in power in the West listens to what Arabs have been saying for decades? Instead, from George W. Bush to Nicolas Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy to Angelica Merkel, they continue to berate the Arabs for not doing enough to reform themselves and continue to lecture Arabs about democracy and peace in the Middle East. Why is it that in the United States, whose population clearly wants to know more about what is behind anti-Americanism, why is it that every issue can be debated publicly and politically in this country, from stem cell, stem cell research to the evolution, to the question of evolution to Iraq, of course, to abortion, but there is no real debate on the question of Palestine and Israel? Why is it that of all these issues, this is the one the one issue where there is virtually no discussion. What, what does it mean that instead of a basic common sense historical explanation which ties the rise of anti-American sentiment to relatively recent support for uh, Zionism and repressive policies in the Middle East, so many in the West have gravitated and have been seduced by the obviously ahistorical argument of a clash of civilizations. Why? These are all real questions. The result, I think, of an inability to deal forthrightly with an issue of tremendous importance is apparent. The Middle East today is more sharply divided than ever before, and precisely along the lines that Albert Hurani sketched and predicted 62 years ago. On the one hand, there is a belligerent United States in occupation of a disintegrating Iraq, financing and defending the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians, the longest occupation in modern history, surrounding itself with a whole bevy of subservient and unrepresentative Arab regimes, the so-called New Middle East. On the other hand, there are anti-liberal organizations, Hezbollah and Hamas, who have unfortunately captured the imagination of millions because they defy an American vision of the Middle East, subordinated to Israel and, of course, to the United States. The tragedy, indeed absurdity, of America and the region is that it wants to crush all manifestations of resistance 
that its own policies perpetually generate. The missionaries of the 19th century were, in a sense, wiser. They laid the seeds of American hegemony because Arabs who knew American individuals and institutions sincerely believed in their potential. They embraced American political rhetoric because they saw Americans doing the same. American policies today, however, produce the exact opposite effect. They propose domination without hegemony. They have left in the dark all those who most deeply believe in the ideals of democracy and freedom in the Middle East. So thank you. Who made them, sorry, what? Uh, what? What do you make of the sort of Anglo-American relations uh, post-World War II in which it was Churchill and Bevin and their advice that changed American liberalism to something what, let's say, uh, William Rogers, uh, William Rogers Lewis calls uh, the, uh, the imperialism of decolonization mm -hmm. and sort of a more sort of conservative approach to dealing with the Middle East. Uh, what, what, what would you fall on, on sort of that debate? Well, on the first question, I can give you an answer. On the second question, speculation. On the first question, the American missionaries in the Ottoman Empire, uh, specifically Howard Bliss, but also others, argued and, and pleaded with Wilson, in fact, not to declare war on the Ottoman Empire because they had so many institutions uh, and so much property in the Ottoman Empire, and because they said there should be a role for the missionaries, the Americans, to play as a neutral uh, power. And this was a policy that was actually pursued. And as a result, the sort of the uh, Ottoman Americans, sort of at least around Syrian Protestant College, um, there was a, a, a sort of a modus vivendi that endured, and the Americans carried out tremendous relief work during the First World War. Um, what's interesting also about that, that point, it's, it's also, it took the First World War for the American missionaries, I didn't talk about this in the talk, but uh, it took the First World War for the American missionaries to get rid of some of the most uh, abhorrent, as far as the local populations were concerned, policies in these institutions, such as forcing non-Muslims to go to chapel service, uh, which the Ottomans, uh, after 1908, both the state and the public, had asked Americans to, to forego in the name of freedom of conscience. And, and it took the First World War and that position of, of relative weakness of the missionaries for them to forego. But there's no question that, that they played a very important role installing an American declaration of war. As far as your second question is concerned, I, I honestly, I mean, it's, it's speculation. Because it's it's uh, the the real the, as far as the declassified documents that I have looked at, and as far as the general histories of Eisenhower, I mean, in the 1950s that I've looked at, it may well there may well have been a, a British rule. There was certainly a lot of contact and collaboration between the British and the Americans, but the basic uh, the basic American support this sort of attempt to balance support for Israel on the one hand and to sort of isolate that, try to isolate that which was the, I mean, I didn't talk about, I, sh I should have made it clear. Initially, the Americans had this vision of, the, of Israel as almost a separate issue. 
and sort of not tied to the rest. And they tried their best to sort of minimize the fallout of their support, and this is what the documents from the 1950s very clearly say, of their support for what they knew was an unpopular state as far as the Arabs, because the Arabs were dispossessed. So they tried to minimize the impact and the damage of that on their, their need to create a stable Middle East given the, the, the essential uh, presence of oil in this region. And they tried this balancing act, and it, it didn't work, but they tried it, at least in the 1950s. That's why I said it didn't go immediately from, from disillusionment to hatred. What's interesting today is that far from trying to sort of separate these two things, what, what the Bush administration in particular is trying to do is trying to mold them together and to try, and it's not going to work. I mean, it's simply, it will not work. You cannot take what people do not accept and, and unless you completely crush them, which is not the case. And that's, that's the problem we have today. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, there are some recent polls showing that the most popular rulers, I should not use the term leaders because they're rulers. Uh, in the Middle East, are either Ahmed Ahmadinejad of Iran, Bashar al-Assad of Syria, and Sheikh Nasrullah, and it's an important person here after Hezbollah in Lebanon. Well, this, the results of these polls could be read differently in different places. Sure. From the West, it could be read that, well, look, Zealots supporting Zealots and protectionism yeah. is in that. But you've talked to the people in the Middle East, they would tell you that, well, look, what you mentioned, that it is a discontent with American foreign policy, whether it's a protest that they're supporting them, because there are some people that were standing up to the United States and saying something that these three leaders do. Others are considered to be stooges of the United States. Correct. I do not know. How do you read this? Uh, well, I think this, the, same way, the same way you do. I mean, Arabs, uh, I mean, the polls you're, you're referring to about the support for Ahmadinejad, most people in Arab world know nothing about, honestly, very little about, uh, uh, about Ahmadinejad and about Iran, for that matter, as far as anything, uh, except you know, in certain parts of Lebanon and Iraq, of course. Um, but the, why do people support Ahmadinejad? Why do they support uh, Nasrallah? Because these leaders offer defiance, a rhetoric of defiance, especially Nasrallah. I know this for a fact, in the sense that their, their rhetoric and in the case of Masala, action, not just rhetoric, but action, um, is, is seen as a long overdue sort of statement that Arabs are not going to be pushed around anymore, are not going to be bullied and terrorized by Western imperialism and by Western violence, and that they're going to push back. That's basically why people gravitate. And so even people who don't agree with Hezbollah at all, most, mo, not, I can't say most, but many Lebanese, at least uh, sizable um, say 40 percent, I'm not even sure, but uh, uh, most uh, non-Shia'i Lebanese don't support Hezbollah's ideological uh, program. They do, however, especially in moments of crisis like 2006, they do support Nasrallah because they look at this man as a man of dignity and they respect that. And, but if you look at Nasrallah's rhetoric and you compare it to Nasser's rhetoric, it's true one is, one is an overtly religious figure and the other one was an overtly secular figure, the rhetoric is very similar. It's about nationalism, it's about, it's about dignity, it's about self-representation, it's about not being bullied by Western imperialism. That's what captures people's imagination. And it's not just in the Arab world, I think it's pretty much anywhere in the world. Yes, ma'am. What would you say the overall sentiment is towards American missionaries in the Arab world today? Today? Yeah, today. Uh, well, today, I mean, I think missionaries, you mean actual real missionaries now on the ground trying to proselytize people, I think it would be a negative, is what I, w I would strongly suspect it would be a negative uh, perspective, because it's always been, even in the 19th century, people were, were very turned off, most people were very turned off by 
somebody coming and telling them what religion to believe in, especially in a part of the world which is so religious uh, and of such uh, ancient Christianity, as far as the Christians are concerned, as, as the Middle East. And so in that sense, there is a negative, um, I, I suspect, I mean, I haven't, I haven't done research on views on missionaries per se today, today, because the missionaries today also are not identified with uh, a secular education. They're not identified with anything that Arabs actually want, whereas the missionaries of the 19th century did offer something that people wanted. So there was common ground. There was some common ground that could build a, a common culture of collaboration. The missionaries today uh, uh, tend to be, uh, I don't know them, but my guess is that they would come across as obnoxious people and also individuals. Yes, sir. Well, it was a desire. I mean, it's a desire that's not just in, in the Ottoman Empire. It was a desire pretty much all over the world because the, the people very quickly figured out that the, the question was, why are we behind the West? And why, why do Western powers like Britain and France and Russia and Austria-Hungary, why do they uh, trample all over the Ottoman provinces with such ease? And what is the secret to this Western, uh, um, this Western um, superiority? It's clearly science. It's engineering. It's technology. And so, therefore, we need to study these things. These become very important. And so, it's not just in the audience in China, it's in Japan. It's, it's across the world that there's this, this real sort of renaissance of education that takes place in the late 19th century, very much as part of, of an attempt to, to balance um, uh, the uh, an unbalanced military structure. Yes, sir. Ma'am, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an enormously difficult question to answer because, uh, um, I mean, that, that gets at the, to the heart of, of, um, of the, the, the end of the talk, but also the, the, the heart of the issue at hand, which is there, there are speculation. I'm going to speculate the way you would speculate. And I think there are several reasons. Walter and Mersheimer, in their book, The Israel Lobby, they make the argument that, that what they call the lobby suppresses this debate. I think that's too simplistic. That's just too simplistic and almost uh, too conspiratorial a, a view. I think there's something else going on here. I mean, I, there are certainly lobbies, like there are for any, another, you know, any number of issues. And there are pressure groups, and whatever issue you happen to be, there are people who are going to try to shut you down. And that's regardless. It's not just Israel. It's, it's any number of issues. But I think there's also, there's also the fact that um, the 
there has been very little price in this country to be paid until very recently for a policy that has consistently alienated the Arab world. There's been almost no price because I mean, there, there's been no pushback in the region until very recently. I mean, uh, until very recently, one through terrorist attacks, which are the wrong way, of course, to respond, but that's one way. And, and the other way, far more catastrophically, is the Iraq war and the burden that the Iraq war is placing on this society, let alone what's going on in Iraq. And so this creates uh, possibly some opening. And so you'd say that there are, there's no debate. I mean, Jimmy Carter is trying to get some kind of debate going. And you know, there is certainly there, there's some sense that the, something is changing. But why there is absolutely no is, is a good I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I really honestly don't know. Part of it may be that there is such an ingrained belief among liberals in this country. But I don't mean liberals in the way Republicans use the term liberal. I mean people who generally care about being... Uh, um, uh, uh, thoughtful and conscientious, and and um, and think about uh, morality and, and the world and and justice and peace and all these things are so um, cannot separate, as you said, the creation of Israel from the Holocaust. And for them, there's this there's this very powerful sense that 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 history is something that cannot be reduced to to anything else. There's and that there's that aspect of it. It's also the one issue where you have extreme fanatical. I mean. Uh, very ardent, the fanatical is the wrong word, but very ardent evangelical Christians and liberals actually agreeing. And it's the only issue. I mean, that's, I cannot think of any other issue. We have such agreement for very different reasons. For very, but there's agreement, and the agreement rests on a complete igno ignoring of the Arabs. The Arabs simply don't count. They do not count as far as Israelis count. And Jewish history counts in this country, I think, a lot more than Muslim history does or Arab history. And people are a lot more familiar with that history than they are with the other history. And I think so it's a process of time and cost. Once people start paying more cost, once people become more educated and more familiar, the situation will change. But we're still a long way from that moment, I think. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's a different, yeah, it's a different. And if so, do you see, if that is the case, do you see this as another potential, you know, maybe Kurdish-Shiite conflict in the future, uh, displaying American hypocrisy or policy? Well, I mean, yes, the answer to your first question is yes, because if you look at the Kurds, I mean, Kurds are not Arabs, of course. Um, but the fact is, again, it's American policies rather than American rhetoric, which is what brings the Kurds of northern Iraq to gravitate around uh, an American presence, they they are the one they are the one, or at least a victor or a winner in the contemporary now setup in Iraq, at least in the short term. Uh, what's going to happen in the long term is a different question. What's going to happen if, if ever the Sunnis and the Shiites get together in Iraq and consolidate their vision uh, of an, an Arab Iraqi state? I don't know what's going to happen. So, but again, the issue of the courage just confirms the point that its policies that you pursue on the ground that people actually care about, not rhetoric. And the worst thing in the world is to have noble rhetoric and have ignoble sort of policies, because those is what, that's what creates the most uh, uh, intense sense of disillusionment and despair. Yes, sir. Can you touch briefly on uh, the Oslo Accord and how that played in 
If I, had, if I had, had a PowerPoint, I would be able to explain it to you very easily. But the reason the Oslo Accords did not work is because, again, it was based on, it was not based on any explicit two-state solution mapped out and clearly defined. It was based on a short-term set of agreements which allowed, in effect, on the ground, again, I'm always talking about policies on the ground, which allowed on the ground the Israelis to consolidate their grip on the West Bank to build more settlements and more bypass, what they call bypass, Jewish-only roads in the West Bank to actually continue their colonization of the West Bank, which they began in 1967. And that generated, I mean, that in and of itself generated the very sort of massive resistance to the very process that Oslo was supposed to be going against. Oslo was meant, was promising peace. And at least in theory, was promising a two-state solution. But in practice... And legally speaking, it just confirmed and consolidated an Israeli grip on the West Bank. And so that, of course, goes exactly opposite to this. There was nothing spelled out. The Israelis did not, in any um, document that I have read or seen, actually say they were going to give the Palestinians a West Bank in the West Bank, a state in the West Bank, in Oslo. There was no such thing. They were talking about all these other issues except the real issues, refugees, Jerusalem, and a state. Those were postponed and postponed and postponed while Israel consolidated its grip. And the amazing thing, of course, ultimately is why is it that there is no other example of, that I'm aware of of colonialism of this type left in the world? What we see today in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem is something that goes back to the 19th century. There, I, I cannot think of any other example. Of, Here's a question. I, I, I think you might be enlightened. Yeah. No, of course not. No, I mean, that's another thing. I mean, it's, and that's why I need the PowerPoint to show you the map of, of West Bank. The bottom line is the same. I'm, what I'm, the, the real question, again, what I was trying to say is that there is no other example that I am aware of of such an egregious example of what I think of as 19th century settler colonialism. You simply go take people's land and you build your, your state. It's, that it doesn't happen anywhere else. And it happens overtly and explicitly right now, even as we speak, with U.S. aid. So when Condoleezza Rice went a few weeks ago to Israel and the West Bank to sort of try to sort of... The Israelis announced that they were going to build more housing units in East Jerusalem. It's a complete act of defiance in the face of the only superpower of the world and, the, and Israel's principal patron. How can they get away with this kind of thing? Why is it that that doesn't generate the kind of outrage that it should, because of its violation of international law and its violation of Israel's own even um, long-term uh, uh, security, and above all, of course, the well-being of the Palestinians who are being oppressed. That, these are the questions that I'm interested in asking. And it goes back to the latest question. Why is it that these things are not being asked or, or discussed? Why is it that, that Obama, McCain, and Clinton agree upon nothing except the issue of Israel? Nothing else. I can't think of anything else where they agree completely. And they're out doing each other to agree with each other. And it stumps me, to be honest. Yes, sir. That's a good question. I mean, the, uh, the, the reason, of course, why the Arabs, it's the Arabs of Syria 
what we today call Lebanon, Syria, uh, and Egypt are the ones who are most familiar with the U.S. is because of the missionary presence there. Uh, the missionaries uh, eventually do move into Arabia. There are missionaries in Arabia in the, in the early 20th century. And uh, King Saud, uh, Ibn Saud, I mean, sorry, uh, of, uh, uh, of Saudi Arabia, the founder of the modern state of Saudi Arabia, does in fact uh, meet, I mean, he has British imperial, uh, British imperial sort of intermediaries, but also American um, missionaries and others, uh, not missionaries, but people who worked or, or associated with American missionaries who were known to him, or at least to his entourage. So that's in the 1920s, really in the 1920s, earlier even in some Gulf, uh, some Gulf states. As far as um, Iraq is concerned, the King Korean Commission never got to Iraq because the British wouldn't allow them into Iraq because they'd already made up their minds that Iraq was too important. Um, and it, it's a much later, it's a much later issue, except that Iraqis, we know, are reading Arabic newspapers that are published in the 19th century and that are either influenced or published by American missionary converts or people associated with American institutions. And Cornelius Van Dyck, as I mentioned, was a figure who was being read about in Baghdad, for example, in the 19th century. But most Arabs come to know America much later, including most Syrians, for that matter. Most people, it's a much later thing when America gets much more involved politically in the region. Yes, ma'am. I mean, it's sort of a, it's an impossible question to answer at one level because we don't know, we don't go into the mind, but what we do have is their literature. What we do have is their literature, and we have also common sense and historical reasoning. And common sense and historical reasoning very clearly indicate that animosity towards the United States, as I said, developed very recently, historically, in, terms of histor in historical terms. And I laid it out in, in the talk. And this animosity has reached such a depth among certain quarters, these fanatics or these fundamentalists that you referred to, that they're willing to kill themselves in an attempt. But you know, I, I think we should focus less on that aspect of it and more on the underlying factors that feed and allow these kinds of people to emerge. Deal with the, co the context, and this is the best way of answering your question, let's deal with the situation, because ideology in and of itself is contextual. Ideology does not stay the same. People are not the same in the 19th century as they are today. And what you refer to as ideology changes profoundly from decade to decade, from period to period, from moment to moment. So ideology in and of itself doesn't explain anything unless you want to contextualize it. And if you contextualize it, you come back to the issue at hand, which is American policies in the region. And the, and the greatest test of this is if the United States, this is a, a great if, were to pursue uh, policies which were actually intelligent and were actually sort of building a stable Middle East, especially in this current era that we're living in, then I think you would see the dividends fairly quickly. Not immediately, perhaps never with some people, but certainly, since I say it, every poll that I have read, every single poll indicates beyond a shadow of a doubt that most Arabs don't hate America and don't hate Americans, but loathe American policies. I think that's where we, there, there is some hope. The, I didn't talk about the opposite case. 
most Americans have, uh, it's, if we talk about American attitudes towards Arabs or others, there you do have a real issue. I think there is a real significant issue because the uh, Arab views towards Arabs are not, I think, entirely based on Arab policies towards the United States. They're based on other issues. Evangelical notions, which is much more powerful and salient and mainstream here than they are over there. I think that, that's, these are the real issues. Yes, sir. If, and yet the United States is perceived as the essential prop of that regime. Sure. And that, too, is an issue quite distinct I, uh, Israel. So yeah, I completely... Does the polls capture that? Well, it, those it, distinctions, those different elements of policy? It depends on the polls. I mean, some polls do. I mean, there are, there are some polls that do, and there are some studies, like the Baker Institute study, changing hearts, winning minds, changing hearts, winning, changing hearts, winning minds, or whatever, winning minds with changing hearts. Uh, one of the, it's, it's, a, it's a very long study that they, they conducted, um, I think four years ago, that gets to the very, this very issue. Yes, you can disaggregate it. You have different levels of antipathy. You have, uh, uh, certainly you have discernment that there are, there are separate issues. Palestine is by no means the only issue. By no means is it the only issue. Iraq, obviously, today is a huge issue, if not the dominant issue, except in all the polling data where people are often asked, what is the issue? Because on Iraq, for example, what is the issue that most galvanizes people? Is it's all, they always come back to the Arab-Israeli issue. Because Iraq is, a, if you have, as you said, the original sin, I, I think of it as a foundation. And then on top of that foundation, you put Iraq policies, which happen to have been pushed by people who are very pro-Israel in the, in the George Bush administration. Together, as far as the Arabs are concerned, you put them together, and you see what's going on. You see, if you watch Al Jazeera, the most popular Arab satellite television station, you see on the one, especially when the Iraq war broke out in 2003, the invasion of Iraq, you see images of Israelis sort of brutalizing the Palestinians with Black Hawk, with helicopters, and all. And then you switch and you see very similar images coming out of Iraq. And so for, for a lot of Arabs, you don't necessarily separate these things. You're, you're thinking of separating them completely. For most people, they go together. Of course, it's an imperial nation. Look what it's doing here. Look what it's doing here. Of course, they don't really care about democracy. If they cared about democracy, why are they doing what they're doing in, um, in you know, all over the Arab, especially with Hamas, this isolation of Gaza? People put them together, many people. However, in Iraq, I think you have a much richer or at least a much more complex view because obviously the, the, in the moment, people in Iraq are concerned with Iraq and with what's going on with their life. So Palestine gets pushed out as a peripheral issue, clearly. So I'm not saying, it's, as I said, it's not everything for everyone, but people don't 
have to disaggregate in the way that you're suggesting, a complete disaggregation. There, there is a linkage for people. And I think also there's a linkage to, uh, to most American administrators who actually go in that region and who study the region. Yes, ma'am. It's a theoretical question. I mean, the, 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 problem, the problem we have is that the borders are not going back anywhere. The borders are going forward, not going back. And so what we see, as I told you, we have this relentless colonization campaign, which is an anachronistic colonization campaign, which is still ongoing. To the hypothetical question as to where would peace actually, where would the final border, what final border do you need in the Arab-Israeli conflict to actually sort of generate peace? Most people would have said a few years ago, 1967 borders. Most people would have said 1967 borders. The problem, I think, if we think about it honestly and deeply, is deeper than this. The problem is that you have Israel, which, want, which, is, which calls itself a Jewish state. In Israel itself, within the 1967 borders, the Arab population, the Muslim and Christian population, is 20%. That's larger than the African-American population in this country. These people are citizens of the state, yet the state calls itself a Jewish state. And so, and there is a tremendous anxiety within Israeli society as to what to do with these people. So the, the problem is much deeper than, than the Palestinians of just the West Bank and Gaza. Although that problem itself is not going away because the Israelis keep taking more of the West Bank. And so what's happening is that the ar argument is that militarily they will overpower and win, but that hasn't succeeded. And in response, if you look at the Arab response to Israeli aggression and more generally towards Western aggression, the response has also gotten ever more, ever more violent. So from the liberals of the 19th century who had nothing to resist the West with, nothing but words, and they lost, to the secular nationals uh, of like Abdel Nasser and others who resisted with their sort of antiqu with their armies and they got crushed. And now you have these non-state organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah, which are far more resilient, apparently, than, than anything that's come before. And, and so the situation gets more and more bleak, bleaker and bleaker, I think, um, because it's not a question of justice. It's a question of who, in the end, is, who, who has the longest endurance in this struggle. That's, what's, that's, that's what it seems to me, as a historian, seems to be happening. I think this is the moment when the clock intervenes. Uh, interest in talking to our speaker has certainly not abated, but a number of people in the room have obligations at 1.30, so um, we ought to uh, thank our speaker here for a very informative talk. Thank you.